Hi, everybody. It's Andy Robbins, and I have a really, really special episode today. I have as my guest Dr. Dan Stock, a medical doctor in the Indianapolis area, and he and I are going to talk about uh, the COVID situation and uh, talk about not only support for the immune system and some novel approaches that we can be taking along those lines to help with prevention and a treatment of even um, upper respiratory issues of various sorts. But this whole COVID situation, of course, it's in our faces every day. And uh, I think the opinions are all over the map in terms of um, what people think about it. And we've heard this research study versus this other research study, which seems to contradict. And having gotten to know Dr. Dan the last couple of years, I, I consider him one of the brightest doctors that I know. And because he's well read and researched on this COVID situation, I invited him on the podcast today to share some of his thoughts and his findings. So without further ado, I want to introduce Dr. Dan Stock. And so Dr. Dan, can you tell us a little bit about your background and your credentials and get our audience a little bit more familiar with what you do? Sure. Uh, I'm a functional family medicine here uh, in Indianapolis, which means basically I, I think beyond the guidelines that governments and insurance companies give me. I was trained at Indiana University, did my internship in preliminary internal medicine at St. Vincent Hospital before going into practice. I've uh, been in practice about 30 years, uh, board certified by uh, functional medicine by the American Board of Anti-Aging and Regenerative Medicine. But I think the big credential I should tell somebody is that I am a paste-eating basic science geek. I even, my colleagues find me tedious um, because I read original research articles and read them from all walks of life. I'm the, the kind of guy who embarrassed himself in biology class by literally out loud saying, oh, neat, when they showed us the Krebs cycle in a classroom of 100 people. <laughs> so, um, that, that does make you unique. Most, yeah, that, that's actually the... I think my distinguishing characteristic is uh, my wife tells people that I, I bore people for a living. Um, <laughs> but I think more so than other doctors, I'm, I'm told by even my colleagues that I go to basic science more deeply and more quickly and make my decisions based on that than most of my colleagues do, even in the functional medicine arena. Yeah. Um, well, I knew that about you the first couple of times we talked, and uh, so I really appreciate your commitment to self-education and furthering your knowledge along these lines. So based upon the fact that you are a self-described research geek, I want to know what your thoughts are about the whole COVID situation. So share with us what you've discovered so far. Well, just some background people need to know about so you can understand why I think our response to this has, has been nowhere near well thought out. People need to understand that we've got like about four layers of ways we define our, de defend ourselves from infections. So evolutionarily, if you're pretty much got more than three cells making up the organism, there is this stuff called innate immunity, which is not very specific. It kind of says bacteria, we fight this way, viruses, we fight this way, parasites, we fight this way. And I have this gross sensor that tells me one of them is in there. Um, and then evolutionarily, as you go along, we developed these things called natural killer cells, which were a type of lymphocyte that developed, that basically learned to wander through the body and come up to any cell in the body and say, hey, look, you have to show me things that tells me you're healthy, and if you're not healthy, I'm gonna kill you. And so that was the second step of immunity, and just about everything with a backbone has natural killer cells. Then evolutionarily, there was this other advance um, called Th1 lymphocytes. And these are lymphocytes that are now specific. They actually can learn a new pathogen. 
hey, you're not streptococcus in general, you'll streptiogenes. You're, you know, they, it can go and say, hey, this protein is novel to me, and the genes in these white blood cells change. And these cells, Th1 cells and what we call uh, Th1 helper, helper cells and Th1 effector cells are the major way we fight germs. These things aren't floating through your bloodstream to do their work. They actually jump out in between your cells, crawl between them, looking for germs, looking for cells that have germs in them. If they find any of these little markers that say there's a germ in here, then that thing attacks it and destroys this thing specifically. And this type of immunity is in just about everything that's got a backbone and higher as well, like reptiles and all this have Th1 type immunity. And this is the major fight we have. And after Th1 has crawled through the tissues, finding the cooties and saying, we're gonna eradicate the cootie, both with natural killer cells and with this specific immunity of the Th1 system, then there is this very late in evolution adaptation of what we call B lymphocytes or B cells. And these are the guys who, after the infection is dead, the Th1 or, or T lymphocytes will then tell the B sites, now it's time for you to make antibodies. So in medical school, we were incorrectly taught that antibodies fight infection. So it's not true at all. Antibodies usually only float in the bloodstream. They don't get out between the cells and into the tissues themselves. They're secreted out onto mucosal surfaces. So as a way to fight infection, they're really not very good because they don't go any places. They're actually developed to prevent reinfection and dissemination. And in fact, people should know this, that when you start getting an infection, the way we actually knew the infection was gone was we would discover the rise in antibodies, which would come on after the symptoms were gone and the disease had passed. But for some reason, when they taught us antibodies fight infections, the fact that they came on after the disease was gone didn't really rattle with us. We didn't get this. So to date, medicine assumes antibodies fight and treat disease, and we measure them, and they're kind of our way of approaching disease. Even though, biochemically, when you look at it, that's not how things work, all right? So then you kind of have to understand how these systems work together when you get a virus like COVID-19. So you get a virus, the innate immune system responds and says, hey, we got six cells. The NK cells come in and start killing up all the six cells. In the meantime, the Th1 helper cells signal the, TH, the T effector cells to say, hey, not only while the innate immune system is doing its nonspecific thing, we want you to specifically get into this tissue and go kill away. So you get COVID-19 or any respiratory pathogen. You know, there's adenovirus or anything that cause common colds because coronaviruses cause common colds. In your nasal passage or the lining of your upper bronchi, these Th cells are going in here with their T effector cells and they're killing off all the cootie and they get rid of it. And if it's a really weak cootie, like most cold viruses are, like most coronaviruses are, you may not even get an antibody response. Because if you kill this thing off really quick, they'll just tell the B cells, man, eh, maybe make a little bit, but you know what? This wasn't much of a problem. We have this solved. And in fact, it's important to know immunologically, the data suggests that these viruses aren't much of a problem. So I'll tell you the difference in why you can tell it. If you look at something like measles, all right, or German measles, where we would see 85, 90% of people who got infected with the virus would develop symptoms, all right? These were viruses that really challenged our immune systems, all right? They were the, the shizzle, all right? And lots of people who got them would get sick, their immune system would fight and overcome it, and we'd get well. And vaccines work very well for these diseases because the major variable in developing disease symptoms was the virus. 
But then you look at the respiratory pathogens like influenza, coronavirus, these what are called uh, RNA, single-strand RNA viruses. And we're seeing the number, of the percent of people who get the virus who develop symptoms is in the 25 to 30 percent. Hmm. That means get symptoms. So the majority of people, 70 percent who get these infections, never even know they have it is so easily taken out. So that also means that for a great many of those people, they're probably going to have very weak or no antibody responses that distinguish them from the normal population. It's like, we didn't tell the B cells to do it. This was easy. All right. And this data was actually backed up from the Diamond Princess. Remember that cruise ship where everybody right. quarantined it forever. So we had this wonderful population of people that we could go in and study and see, hey, did we find the virus there and all those? And lo and behold, even though this was a, a group of people in their 50s, only about 70% 70 of people who got the infection that we could go find, yeah, you really had it. Only 70% 70, 70 never had any symptoms. So these diseases aren't very amenable to uh, vaccination uh, because you're, you're, if you go after the problem being the virus, you, you've gone to the wrong part of the equation. If 70% of the people get the infection and never have symptoms, the difference between the 70% and the 30% isn't the presence of virus, it's the health of the immune system and the immune system and the innate immunity functions. There you go. So this explains why if you look at like influenza vaccines, everybody says, wow, these are so great. Well, on a good year, they reduce the death rate by 60%. Now remember, 70% of people who get influenza never even know they got it, all right? Of the 30% who know they got it, a certain percentage are gonna get sick, it's usually about one, 2%, and you're able to reduce that from one to 2%, about 60% on a good year. Most years, it's around 30, 40%. Hmm. So now you're taking this 1% or 2%, and maybe you're getting it down to the half to 1% death rate. So that's how much benefit you're getting from vaccine. It's not that they aren't beneficial, but you'll never get much more than that because the problem here is not the virus. It's the immune system. This isn't like measles or polio or uh, smallpox, all right? The other thing, that, and this is being ignored by the advice that's coming out of the CDC and the NIH and the people who are working on this are completely ignoring the reality that to begin with, the problem was the virus. Um, SARS and MERS, two other coronaviruses that were like this, had the same kind of patterns. 70% of people who get it would never know they were sick. Um, and so to my mind, the idea that we should approach this through a attack the virus tells me that you're, you're going after the weakness. There's a reality here that's been missed by this. And it, it's been heavily missed because of the testing and what we're calling a COVID-19 death. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to remember, you know, back before this hysteria hit, if a guy got into the hospital and got influenza and he had a mild case of influenza, but he also had a heart failure and it exacerbated his heart failure, and he died from his heart failure, that would not be listed as a influenza death. That was a heart failure death. But then the government said, you know what, we're going to pay hospitals this amount of money if you have a COVID-19 death, and we don't care how you define it. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, if he walks in and he's got a cough and looks to we're going to call him a COVID-19 death. Right. And so then as you look at this, you say, oh, we've got, now we've got this broad definition of COVID-19 death. Well, if that's the number we're going to work on is this broad definition. Remember, we have a human being here who's dying because, not because he got coronavirus or COVID-19, but because his immune system sucks. And then what we're going to do is say, oh, well, we're going to wipe out the virus. It's like, well, that's great. He'll get some other virus, die from his heart failure because he got that virus. 
and we're going to say it's COVID-19, and so we're not going to reduce the death rate. And so because of the way we've defined COVID-19 illness right now, I expect that we're not going to get much by going after the virus because the problem isn't primarily the virus. And death will continue to occur with viral type symptoms surrounding that death because we've missed this. Mm -hmm. um, the other problem we're having with the epidemiology of this COVID-19 is that they keep using antibody tests to see, well, this guy had it and this guy didn't. We have to remember that it's not a very good test with people with good immune systems. They may never make an antibody. Right. And so they say, we've got this percentage of the population has it. And I tell them, well, you don't know if that's right because the test you're using is really bad. If you would do a gamma interferon stimulation assay, you might find a bigger number of people who've already had this sucker. And then I think the last epidemiologic thing that's being really stupidly handled in this is that we, we have this infection rate that we talk about going on, which is all coming from what's called cascade testing, meaning we're not going out and testing a random sample of people in the population. We're testing everybody who's been in contact with somebody who had the virus. So our epidemiology that's telling us the rates are this high, well, we have no idea what the rate is, to be honest with you. And I think probably one of the things that really demonstrates the superficially thought out response that we're getting from the authorities on this is they have magically picked out a number of infection rate that's, that's good. So if the, as long as the rate's 5% positivity rate, we're good. I'm like, where are you getting that number? Did right. you show that that number reduced death? <laughs> you just, you're making things up because right. you're not using science to look at it. Because if you thought about it deeply, you would recognize that quarantine never had a chance of success of preventing us from ex getting exposed to this virus. And second of all, the goal wasn't to not get us exposed to this virus. Remember, 70% of people are going to get this virus and have it for dinner. The goal should have been to say, this virus is another indicator that you have a lousy immune system, and we should work on that end of the equation. As a matter of fact, a lot of people are treating COVID-19 like Ebola. I tell somebody, well, Ebola is a gastrointestinal virus. It has a fairly high penetration rate. If you get the virus, a large percentage of people get it. And a very short incubation period, if you get the virus within about five days, you have symptoms, all right? Well, but then look at COVID-19. Not only does it have a terribly low percentage of people who get the virus who get symptoms, it's got a 14-day incubation period. So in order for this selective quarantining to work, oh, we're going to get the guy who got exposed and get a hold of him. Well, first of all, most of the people who are getting the virus never have any symptoms, so we never quarantine them. Right. And then by the time we do get the guy who had symptoms or was contact with the guy who had symptoms, we get to this guy and we test him. Well, you know, for 14 days, he's been spreading it around the population around him. And so now effectively you have to quarantine the entire population and it becomes very nonspecific. And as a matter of fact, to prove this, several years ago, there was a study done with influenza where we said, what we're going to do is we're going to take a group of people and we're going to put them on masks and gloves and hygiene control and all of this over the entire flu season. We're going to do it for this segment of the population, but not for this segment of the population. And we're going to see if it reduces influenza death. And it didn't work. Hmm. <laughs> okay. It was an old study. Boy, we're getting somewhere. <laughs> Indicating that, look, because this, if you look at the, all of the variables that are in the death from respiratory virus equation, this particular variable is a very small one, is the virus. It's primarily the immune system. Then when you take a very small variable and you measure it badly with antibodies, 
Um, and it's a difficult variable to control because of its very long incubation period and it's very high asymptomatically. You can get to the point where you're trying to control a small variable with tools that don't work very well when you can't measure it very well. And you're, the return on your investment of what you give up financially to get this is gonna be miserable. So look, we've already bankrupted the country and done all these things with this non-specific general quarantine. Nevertheless, it still keeps transmitting through the population. Yeah. Well, we cut it down from 6% to 5%. I'm like, you don't understand. It's not the number you think it is. The number you, you care about doesn't matter anyway, and you're not going to win. You can't yeah. control this virus. Otherwise, we would have wiped out coronavirus years ago. <laughs> so they keep saying that the numbers keep climbing. I saw a report yesterday that it supposedly spiked again in Florida. And of course, the governor of Florida opened everything back up. And then you hear this report a few days later or a week or so later that things have spiked again. And uh, the last number that I heard someone share verbally with me that the death rate or the death numbers in uh, the United States are approaching 200,000 now. So you've talked about how this whole thing was handled. So first of all, I want to get you, you to reiterate, I know you already kind of alluded to this, that the death by coronavirus is not being handled properly. So what's being called a death by coronavirus isn't death by coronavirus at all, maybe death with coronavirus, but certainly not because of it. So I'd like for you to speak to that. But why are the authorities handling this the way they are? I know you probably can't speak real specifically to that because you're not in our government, but do you have any idea why some of the medical professionals who are supposedly experts like Fauci and whoever else are handling it the way that they're handling it because it just never seemed to make logical sense to me that we quarantine the healthy. You know, usually when some, someone is sick and a true outbreak happens, you quarantine the sick, you don't quarantine the healthy. And these masks that we're using, you know, have some concerns of their own. So can you speak to that? Why are we handling this the way that we are in your opinion? Yeah, uh, this is a combination of idiocy selection and mustache twirling villain. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it's, it's really tempting to say, ah, you know, that evil man is out there just manipulating this. I think there's a degree of that, but there's this other big degree that people don't realize. And that is, you know, when Dr. Fauci was selected for his role, or when anyone is selected for any role in the administration, he is not selected because we doctors get together and say, you know what? Anthony's the smartest guy on this disease we've seen in the whole group of doctors. We should have him run this. He is selected because a lobbyist finds his particular idiocy to be profitable. Mm -hmm. Done work making vaccines or done work developing testing. And so therefore some company thinks this guy's useful, goes to people administration to Congress and says, hey, you should confirm this guy for this area and make him take this role. And so you get somebody who is maybe not the brightest of our profession, but he's the most profitable idiot to the lobbyist in Washington. Wow. He's put in this position. He then gets other people who, are, who think like he does, you know, they're not mustache twirling villains at this point. They're just profitable idiots. All right. They get put into their positions and this think tank of idiocy develops about antibodies, antibodies, vaccines, vaccines. If your whole career is making vaccines, you probably don't stop to think about, well, are there places vaccines don't work? And by the way, we have at least three vaccines that hurt people, mm. um, two of which not only hurt people, but because they deranged the immune system, they actually worsened the disease they were to fight. So for instance, Dr. Fauci was actually involved with the making of an HIV vaccine that increased your risk of developing AIDS. 
Wow. Um, there was a Lyme vaccine made that increased your risk of getting Lyme disease. <laughs> and then a rotavirus vaccine to fight the rotavirus uh, diarrhea thing that made your intestines have this high rate of kissing into susception and getting a surgery real quick so we can fix your now strangling gut. Um, you can't make this so, stuff up. Yeah, well, this is what happens when you go to a virus that's a very small part of the disease equation because immune system and its regulation is rather complex. And what we're pretty sure happened with both the Lyme and the HIV vaccines is we convinced the immune system to rapidly go from its TH, uh, T helper and T uh, cytotoxic cells that were crawling between the tissues looking for germs. And we made that phase of the immune system shorten very quickly and go to making antibodies. And so it was making this stuff that was supposedly there to prevent infection. But HIV, you can't like, paint your mucosal surfaces with, uh, with antibodies and keep HIV from getting in. It gets in through, you know, tears in the mucosa of the vagina during intercourse. It gets into blood transfusions. So antibodies won't help you there very much. And it lives and grows within cells where antibodies can't get inside of a cell. So it doesn't really help with that. The T effector cells and the natural killer cells through the production of this thing called transfer factor actually have a way to go look inside of a cell and say, oh, there's a cootie inside this cell. Now I'm going to kill that cell. Well, antibodies can't help with that. But if you've been selected to run this thing because you have this interest in getting antibodies made, then it never occurs to you that that may not be helpful in a disease like this. As a matter of fact, one of the things that these guys have never solved is the idea that when we go vaccinate a group of people, we know that the people who develop antibodies have greater immunity to the germ than the people who don't get antibodies. But the degree of antibody production has no correlation with the degree of protection you're getting. Hmm. That's right. Hmm. So you make a million antibodies, you don't have any better protection than the guy who made this many that we can touch. And which comes out to say that, look, it's, it's an epi, the antibodies are an epiphenomenon. So part of this is idiot selection. Doctors aren't selected to have these roles because they're the smartest doctors. Uh, measured by the opinions of all of their colleagues, you're selected because the lobbyist thinks you're profitable. But then there's Back to politics. Problem. Yeah, well, then there's another problem that then compounds this. Because the really way to get a system messed up is to give an idiot a lot of power. <laughs> and in fact, uh, back in the, I think it was in the 80s, a, a law was passed called the Bayh-Dole Act, which actually made it so that you could use taxpayer dollars to develop a product and then the guy who developed that could get a patent on that that he owned individually. Not that the government owned because it paid for the research, but the individual did. And he could do that even if the individual was the guy deciding how the federal dollars were going to be spent. So now the guy who decides how the federal dollars get spent is actually using federal dollars to develop a product that he's going to profit from. Uh, major conflict of interest there. Major conflict of interest. I don't know for a fact, but I have heard allegations made by several people that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield both have patents uh, regarding testing and treatment options that are in play. And so now the must-test-filling villain sits in. Mm -hmm. and, you know, if you're an idiot to begin with, it's, it's really, really hard when you start making money off of your idiocy to learn that you're an idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> right. These things get promulgated, especially the more and more people who think they're going to profit from this individually, it just gets promulgated. And, you know, then this uh, attention on the antibodies and vaccines just continues to grow. You know, I suspect, uh, for instance, I know the FDA had come out and said, um, 
we're going to license a COVID-19 vaccine if it can reduce the death rate by the disease rate by 50%. Mm-hmm. Not the death rate, the disease rate. 50% is what I understand they said. So I, I'll tell somebody, well, first of all, if it were 10% reduced, still wouldn't somebody want to consider that. But of course, that didn't make it. But the, the pharmaceutical industry, I understand, is already lobbying to have that number reduced to 25% because they suspect their vaccine is not going to be able to jump the hurdle. Why? Because the whole problem is on 30% virus. Mm. And I think they're aware that, you know, look, especially if we're defining COVID-19 death as, I don't know, the guy had a respiratory illness and died. Um, if this is our definition, I think they're a little afraid that this man with a lousy immune system is going to get some adenovirus or rhinovirus and that that's going to get him killed. And so they won't really have an impact on the death rate or disease rate. And so they're lobbying to get that number down to the influenza level <laughs> so that they can get this through. Mm. Uh, this is what I hear. But again, it's, it's what happens when idiocy meets mustache twirling villain um, and continues to go on. And, and most sadly, um, it misses the opportunity to have actually made an incursion in that, 70 per, in that 30% who have the lousy immune system regulation, where we could have made some inroads to change this. Right. Um, I tell people, when this vaccine for coronavirus comes out, I'm not taking this vaccine until 100,000 people have been followed out for nine months to a year. Um, there's a very good chance that what we may end up doing, especially if they use a killed virus method of doing this, is that they're able to generate a great deal of antibodies and actually downregulate the immune system response to the virus. You know, this is the thing where you're going to have to follow somebody out for a period of time before you're going to be able to prove that happened. Yeah, exactly. So you think that a lot of this is driven by profit, a lot of the response of this is driven by the potential profit to be made from a vaccine or from some other profitable enterprise. Is that what you're saying? Well, I suspect it's a combination of the mustache twirling villain. I'd probably, it's probably 30 to 40% mustache twirling villains. And, you know, somewhere between, you know, 50 to 60 to 70% profitable idiocy. You know, it's, it's quite possible there are a lot of people working in this arena right now who sincerely believe that general quarantine of the population is going to make a difference in the number of people who die. Let's use the state of Indiana, for example. I know our state health commissioner. She's a very nice person. She's a very good OBGYN. Um, if you ask me, do I suspect she knows enough about immunology to be able to understand these nuances we're talking about here? Probably not. And you have to remember that once you get somebody who's now become in to this position of power, if they are the useful idiot in a position of power, um, they get threatened that if you don't use your power in the way we want, well, that, there's consequences to that. Mm-hmm. Right. And you no longer have an OBGYN practice to go back to, and you probably didn't want to go back to, you wouldn't have left it in the first place. So now you can be made to ignore unpleasant truths. Hmm. And so I think a lot of that is what's keeping this going. I, I, I hear these uh, medical, these uh, health directors and the way they talk about, you know, with the case rate so high. And I tell them, look, episodes of positive tests, nobody cares about this. We right. don't even care if you have a week of bad sore throat. It's the death thing that matters. <laughs> right. And, and when you look at that, quarantining the entire population doesn't work. So the other idiocy I've seen in this thing is we tell people, say, well, we've proven masks work. And I say, well, where's, let me show your study. 
Well, see, we took a group of people in the intensive care unit, we put masks on all the caregivers, and it reduced the disease rate both in the caregivers and in the other people in the intensive care unit who didn't have come who uh, didn't have symptoms at the start of the trial. And I tell them, okay, but you realize there's some problems with your study. First of all, you're studying an enclosed system with people who are very sick and shedding enormous amounts of virus because their immune system wasn't doing anything about it, all right? Mm -hmm. So they're getting a dose of infection much higher than the general population does. Second of all, you have them all enclosed in this space so that it's not going to drop off as fast. And thirdly, they're hanging around a bunch of people who have really, really bad immune systems so they wouldn't be in the intensive care unit. Um, and so... Your, your, your prediction of see how it worked in the intensive care unit doesn't tell us anything about what's going to happen if we use the same technology of masks and isolation in the general population. And even if it did have an effect to slow the transmission, which I'll even grant you, I think it probably does slow the transmission. Slowing transmission was not the goal of the therapy. It was to prevent death. Right. And if you don't fix the immune system, this virus is going to go around even if you vaccinate people because your vaccine is not going to be 100% effective. No vaccine is. And the, and the less and less the disease has to do with the virus and the more and more it has to do with the immune system, the less and less it works and the greater the greater the side effects become. So you're not going to protect that person by putting a general quarantine on. Eventually, if he doesn't have an immune system to hit this virus, he's going to get a hold of this virus or some other virus like it, he's going to die. Mm -hmm. So... This is, um, this is where I tell people to focus on this virus. It works great in measles and German measles and pretty good in Ebola and all of that. But it's not going to work in a respiratory virus like corona. Um, you know, the, the differences between these viruses and the difference between uh, the effect of the immune system is so much different that it's not going to work here. And, and so the NEC continues. And then sadly, what gets missed is the stuff that we could do about the immune system that would solve not only a true COVID-19 death, but all of the untrue COVID-19 death that we doctors are being pushed to diagnose, yeah. and all of the other diseases that immune systems are responsible for handling, like cancer. And I want to talk about that in a minute, the, some of the interventions that we can be doing that have been shown to work. Uh, but before we get to that, and, and I'm, I'm Looking forward to getting to that part of our discussion because that's a part of our discussion that I think is going to be part of the, the therapeutic and clinical aspect of where we want to take our discussion. But um, the, the thing that I want to talk about just prior to getting to that is masks. You know, I, I'm wondering why we went this direction in this response because when you know, Ebola came around and MRSA came around and all that. We didn't have a response like this with masks. And I'm wondering why we have this now. And I want to share a quick experience with you and our listeners. When um, I was a, a very young man in my early 20s, I was a Finnish man for a furniture making factory, and which meant that I was in a spray booth all day long applying a wet finish to this wood. So I would have to mask up and gown up and, and uh, I had a really high-tech mask. It was a, a rubber form-fitting mask with two straps tightly on my head. So it was very, it was suctioned to my face with two huge high-tech filters on each side. And you would spray, I, I could spray with that thing for about an hour and take off my mask and my nostrils would be lined with overspray. Now you can see overspray with the naked eye. And if overspray, a big wet molecule is getting through that high tech 
double filtered mask to line my nostrils. What do we think these little masks are doing with a molecule that you cannot see with a naked eye, that you have to have a high powered microscope to see it? I'm just wondering where our critical thinking went, but that's my opinion. Um, I, I would like to know what your thoughts are on that. So I think it is important to know that the mask data was done with these N95 masks for 95% of the air coming in and out of the mask that pushed through the filter. If you just go get the regular surgical mask that you can buy over the counter right now, who knows what that does? I suspect very little. Even if you looked at an N95 mask, people need to understand that we cannot view this in the black and white lens of get exposed to virus or not get exposed to virus. Even an N95 mask doesn't mean you don't get exposed. It means you get exposed to a lower dose of virus that we're praying your immune system can handle in time, all right? So it, an N95 mask probably does reduce exposure to some degree, but now you have the problem of, look, eventually, unless you're gonna wear this mask for the remainder of your life, you're going to have to take it off. Now, the example you use with the wood finish you're doing, you take it off and you say, well, gee, I can still smell particles and I get in my nose and all that. Well, the other particles are on your arms and all of this, and they go back out in the air. Your mask is off now, they go back in there. But the same thing is going to be true even if you take off an N95 mask. I mean, eventually your sister that you're living with is going to walk down the hall, meet somebody else who had COVID-19, come home, and in the moments you don't have your mask on, she's going to give you a small dose of COVID-19. It's going to come down to your immune system. Right. Um, and so the idea of mask, it comes from the idea that, gee, look what we were able to do with Ebola. But again, I stress, Ebola is a gastrointestinal virus. It's easy to control the flow of stool. Respiratory viruses flow in air. It's not easy to control the flow of air. Ebola has a short incubation period. So you can find the people you need to quarantine very quickly. COVID and respiratory viruses don't. They all have long incubation periods. COVID, one of the longest ones. And second of all, Ebola has a very high penetration. It infects and causes disease in a great many people who get the virus. These respiratory viruses don't. And so the idea that quarantine, that we could avoid this pathogen as a successful way to work, never has been effective. And I tell people, go looking at germs. If a germ is able to get to you, usually your defenses had to be your immune system. I look at smallpox as a great example. People say, well, look what we did with smallpox. I say, but again, smallpox had a very high penetration. It needed a fairly high viral load to overcome your immune system. But when you did, you got that load, a lot of people came down with illness, all right? But we were successful in eradicating smallpox because smallpox could infect only one organism in the entire world, and that was human beings. It had no other place it can live. But we already know COVID is living in dogs and other things like that. Influenza lives in ducks. And so the idea that we're going to be able to wipe this thing out by, you know, doing a, a vaccine which doesn't really prepare for that cellular immunity the way we want, um, that we were going to be able to get rid of this virus and none of us would have it, I tell them, well, it's naive. It doesn't happen. As a matter of fact, the reason SARS and MERS aren't killing us right now is because the herd immunity developed to those viruses. And in fact, there's an argument made that all the quarantining steps we're doing is actually killing people. And it's not just because we're making them depressed from social isolation and, and bankrupt and going into depression. Part of it is that you're now prolonging the period of time that the susceptible individuals, let's say we never fix their immune system, the length of time that they can be exposed to high levels of coronavirus because the herd never gets immunity 
has been prolonged. And that actually we would be better to let it run through all of the healthy people, that 70%. We would be better off to get that 70% sick right now, or not sick, but infected, so they could develop herd immunity. Now 70% of the population can no longer transmit this virus, or at least for a very short time will transmit it at a very low level because they're so good at fighting it. And now the exposure of the vulnerable goes down. Whereas what we're doing now is actually increasing the time of exposure for the vulnerable. To really prove that these general quarantines have any effect, we would have to do two cruise ships like the Diamond Princess, one of them gets masks and one who doesn't. We gotta keep them on there for a year yeah. to prove this with great certainty. But we're watching an extrapolation from very precarious data by people who were selected because they were usefully foolish. Um, and then became, got a mustache twirling incentive. We were watching them take this very complicated equation and treat it like it's a simple math problem of two plus two equals four. Um, so then I've seen this because masks equals equal life. And I'm like, no, it's not that simple. Right. Right. So would it be your assessment then that while COVID is real, and it obviously is, and it has killed some people with comorbidities usually, uh, that it's usually the virus itself is probably no more dangerous than garden variety influenza? Would that be, I mean, I'm hearing a lot of your colleagues say that. Would that be your opinion as well? Yeah, just because when I'm watching the population, you know, I'd Everybody knows somebody who died from COVID, but everybody knows somebody who died from influenza too. I, yeah. I have a suspicion from the data that came out of the Diamond Princess, this particular COVID virus, when you're in the 30%, it probably is a little more lethal than influenza, but it's really tough to know because our data is so terrible because it's all been poisoned. Yes. Um, it, it, so it's really tough to know. But the one thing I can say with certainty is no matter if this is going to be more lethal than influenza or not, Quarantine is not going to get us out of this. Vaccine is not going to get us out of this. Very unlikely that vaccine is going to get us out of this. Otherwise, we, we exposed to coronaviruses all day long. We would have had herd immunity to coronaviruses. Yeah. Right? Um, if we don't fix the immune system deficits here and the regulatory problems of the immune system, this isn't going to work. I'll give you another good example of, of why I think that's true. There was a study published in New England Journal of Medicine probably about a month ago now uh, where they're using convalescent plasma. So we're giving people who got into the hospital with COVID-19 disease, we're gonna take serum with antibodies and they did a good job making sure this serum really did have antibodies to COVID-19 to it. And we're gonna give it to these people. And it was interesting that it very rapidly, within a day or two, we could no longer find virus in these sick people on the respiratory units and all of that. But what it didn't do is reduce the death rate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, now it's true in that study we didn't give them this we didn't give them the antibodies till they'd been sick for two weeks if we'd done it earlier we may have actually reduced the death rate but right now but i'm i'm not sure of that because we rapidly made them get rid of virus people need to understand in these respiratory diseases that what kills you is not the virus destroying healthy cells by getting into the cell it's not like every cell with a virus dies and that's why you get sick you get sick from this because your immune system goes out of control and starts doing things to you that are more harmful than helpful. That's why steroids, prednisone and dexamethasone have been shown they decrease the death rate. As a matter of fact, these things that modulate the immune system did better than remdesivir did. This is the one that attacks the virus and remdesivir reduced hospitalization days, I think by two or three, uh, two or three days, but it didn't affect the death rate. 
<laughs> so I tell people, you know, you're getting more and more information that says, look, you're not going to win going after the bug. Yeah. The you have an opinion. Do you have an opinion about hydroxychloroquine? You know, I, I, it's very tough to say. I, in the intensive care unit setting, uh, a study was done that showed it didn't have a lot of benefit. You have to remember that hydroxychloroquine is an immune-modulating drug, all right? Mm -hmm. It's a very blunt instrument for doing so. So when you go in with these blunt instruments, it can be very easy to cause more damage than you solve. That may be why it didn't have any effect in people in the intensive care unit. Now, the, the question to be asked is, well, what if we used it in people who were in the ones who weren't going to die, but what if we used it in the people who are just going to get sick and have symptoms? In those people, it may actually reduce the time of disease and make those people do better. It's really hard to tell somebody that hydroxychloroquine is, is a great treatment for this because like vaccination, we're not really sure it's the right manipulation of the immune system. And I tell people, you, you don't, let's face it, the, guy, the difference between the 70% who never get any symptoms and the 30% who do get symptoms isn't hydroxychloroquine deficiency. Right, exactly. Yeah. The other 70% have it too. Right. So I, I think it, it may be in the toolbox that we use, but I suspect it's going to be a, a very blunt tool that doesn't do a lot. I don't want to say it does nothing. What I wouldn't want to do is somebody miss some of the other things that we have good evidence for, mm -hmm. where it does make a big difference. I don't want to see that get missed um, using something like hydroxychloroquine. Because we have other things that are, have bigger effects with less side effects. Right. And those of us who are geeks who optimize things, you know, you can say this tool's good. I'm like, yeah, but this tool's better. All yes. Right? And I want better. I don't want the good tool. I want the better tool. Okay. So and, that's a nice segue into talking about ways that we can effectively prevent and perhaps even treat these respiratory infections. So let's talk about that because ultimately that's what we want to get after. Let's build up the immune system prevent getting sick in the first place. And if we do get sick, let's lessen the duration and the severity of the infection. So in that one, I think the, the probably the biggest missed thing that makes me want to sob the most is vitamin D is in David. Um, and, and I can tell you, there was a study done, I think it was around eight years ago now, where they actually took a group of human beings going into influenza season. And they said, look, we're going to randomize you to either dummy pill or 5,000 international units a day of vitamin D. Uh, by the way, I want the, reader, the listeners to know that vitamin D is not a vitamin, all right? It was misnamed by a doctor who found traces in milk and assumed everything at low level in food was a vitamin. Um, it's actually a hormone. Most of what's in your body is produced by your skin, and its major function is actually to regulate inflammatory and immune system responses. So they took this group of people, divided them in half randomly, get a dummy pill of 5,000 of vitamin D, and they said, all we want you to do is write down every time you get a runny nose, stuffing a sore throat, cough complex with a low-grade fever, all right? And we want to see, does this vitamin D reduce the frequency and the, of developing these syndromes? It reduced the frequency of viral respiratory syndromes by 70%. Wow. Now, critics of that are going to say, well, that doesn't mean it'll do 70% in COVID. And I'm going to say, well, but remember, COVID is a cold virus, all right? Yeah. It's like influenza, like the others. We've no reason to believe it's not going to do the exact same thing. I can tell you that we have a reason to believe it is going to do the same thing because if you looked at one of the risk factors, in fact, one of the biggest risk factors for COVID-19 disease and death was a low level of vitamin D. Hmm. Um, that's already been established that yes, the vitamin D levels of people who die or develop COVID-19 disease are markedly less than the people who don't develop COVID-19 yeah, disease. Absolutely. So besides that, 
you could not ask for a safer agent to treat people with. There have, I have read probably 30 trials of placebo-controlled randomized blinded trials of things done with vitamin D. The one thing they have in common, sometimes it doesn't help your knee arthritis, sometimes it doesn't reduce asthma, but the one thing it always has is a side effect rate less than dummy pills. Not equal to dummy pills, less than dummy pills. I did not know that about vitamin D. In every trial, which means that it's fixing other things even besides the thing we're looking at. So for instance, there was a study done with vitamin D, just a, a perfectly done study with vitamin D in the prevention of cancer that reduced the risk of cancer somewhere between 60 and 80%. And we could predict with 95% certainty that that reduction of risk was due to the vitamin D because the on-treatment risk analysis was done showed that the level of protection was, was uh, proportional to the vitamin D level achieved. Hmm. Um, so there's so many other benefits that to see vitamin D get missed as the preventative saddens me because it's probably our best preventative. Hmm. Um, and it, and it brings other things to the table beside this. In fact, one of the reasons I'm so sure this is true is because now I'm watching the NIH sponsor badly done trials to prove vitamin D doesn't work. <laughs> surprise, <laughs> so, surprise. Yeah. So after I've seen a, a, a flawlessly executed trial that shows that it does work, I then see somebody go off and do a very bad study to show it doesn't. Um, <laughs> Such is the case of uh, uh, modern American conventional medicine, which, by the way, and I, I want you to continue on this train of thought, but I want to interject this. You know, I'm seeing a lot of people in the natural medicine world, not a lot of people, but a few people in the natural medicine world have this reaction to COVID like the sky is falling. And it really surprises me because all these years that I've been working with natural medicine doctors and my various colleagues and people in the field, we've all understood that there is fraudulent research out there, badly done research that's conducted in such a way as to get the outcome that they want. We know there's fraud in this industry. It's been around for years. We know that there's conflict of interest everywhere. And so we've spent our careers fighting this, uh, fighting the fraudulent research that says probiotics don't work, vitamin D doesn't work, fish oil doesn't work. We've spent our lives fighting this fraudulent research. And then all of a sudden when COVID comes out, we're ready to throw all that understanding of how research is done to the side and say, oh my God, the world is ending. And so I'm wondering why that this response exists to this when we've not responded this way to other things? So the response for COVID has just had an enormous fear packed around it. And one of the things you need to recognize about frightened people is they don't think deeply. After all, you see me and you take all of these things into account for me and you see, gee, Dan's a nice guy. And if I come at you with my fist really quick, your first thing is forget what Dan's wearing and what is nice. I got to protect myself from the fist. And so when fear comes up, people don't think deeply. And when your population of people, and we're mostly a cash pay business, um, they're all getting very scared. And the, the, you know, the TV is telling them how lethal COVID is to stand out like a weirdo in that situation and say the response is irrational at the very beginning when it starts to be irrational. In addition, believe it or not, the average functional medicine doctor really isn't that geeky either. There's a lot of financial conflicts in the functional medicine world as well. Hmm. And these conflicts of interest, I think, make them scared to stand out. Um, I think the fear starts to get better the longer something like our idiotic response goes on and the more depression and bankruptcy occurs. People begin to realize, 
I don't think this might be as real as I, because it doesn't seem to work. Right. Um, and then I think we'll see more of the functional people stand up and say, hey, look, this is what matters. I can tell you in my population, when my patients come and ask me, they say, Dr. Stock, geez, you know, it's, it's the end of March and you're not wearing a mask. And, and I'm like, well, look, I have a vitamin D level of 78. And by the way, so do you, because I tested it. All right. <laughs> um, so if you're asking, am I losing lots of sleep over this? I'm not. All right. And here's why. And I give them the epidemiology that we know and the basic science and immunology facts. But I think you have to understand that among functional medicine doctors, I am one of the more tedious and boring human beings you're ever going to meet. And so most of them, when I sit down and go over the interaction between the innate immune system and the natural killer cell lymphocytes and the T lymphocytes and the cytotoxic T lymphocytes, and then to the B cells that make antibodies, a lot of my colleagues are, all right. So (laughs) if you don't know all those variables, it's hard to overcome the fear. And remember that, that the guys from the NIH and the CDC have been stroking fear. Yes. Um, I mean, I've seen commercials that are telling you if you don't wear a mask, you don't care about your neighbor. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, you know, this is an emotional wrench to turn on somebody and to stand up and say, well, the guy on the TV's an idiot. Um, he's not thought this out very well. It's a frightening thing to ask a doctor to take, especially yeah. when people are losing their income and they're not coming to pay the cash pay doctor anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that may be a lot of the reason why our profession hasn't stood up and, and said, you know, no. I don't think a lot of people have read that study about vitamin D in the, in the, in the viral transmission of 10 years ago. Um, so how much vitamin D in a case like this would you recommend? Now, I'm basing my question off of the recommendations of the Vitamin D Council, who is, you know, one of the experts out there on this topic, of course. They don't sell any products. They're a research group. And they say that anyone north of Atlanta, especially during the winter months, needs to be taking at a minimum 5,000 units a day. So as we enter cold and flu season now, as we're getting ready to hit fall, or actually we're in it now, would you say that's where we need to be with this corona situation, or do we need to go even higher? I'm a 7,000 international units a day guy. Um, the reason I'm into 7,000 is we had studies done on 50,000 international units a week, and vitamin D has this enormous half-life, so it lasts very long in your body. Um, but I tell people at 7,000 a day, we've got safety proven. It tops the tank off of nearly everybody. Unless somebody's you know, got a really bad case of chronic inflammatory response syndrome, uh, 7,000 international units a day is going to do it. Some people need as much as 10,000. Uh, we have data on safety that says, look, 10,000 a day, you can't hurt a human being that it, our best data says it takes in excess of 10,000 a day for two straight weeks um, before you can cause somebody to have taste perversion and nausea, which appear to be the side effects of vitamin D. Mm. Um, you can get people, if they're really eating bad food, where they deplete their vitamin K levels because vitamin D makes you use calcium and, and absorb calcium. And if you can't use calcium right, which you can't without vitamin K, you can make yourself become vitamin K deficient. So I encourage people to put it, you know, at least 100, 200 micrograms of vitamin K with it a day. Higher doses appear not to be harmful. So I kind of like higher doses because they're cheap. Yeah. Um, but those are the, the recommendations. Most of my patients I have taken 7,000 of vitamin D a day and about uh, 2,000 micrograms of vitamin K to make sure that it's doing well. Um, if, you know, if you're somebody who's, you know, a small girl who's got no chronic inflammatory response and eats very healthy and all of this and has low inflammation, you may be able to get by on as little as two, 3,000 a day. You know, the nice thing about these nutraceutical approaches is the body, in, whenever the body is designed to work with a thing, it's usually designed to work with a really wide window of that. 
and because doses of 7,000 a day just don't hurt anybody, you, you can't. Uh, you just can't hurt them. Yeah. I tell somebody, especially with vitamin K, I tell them, look, I, I ask people to get tested to make sure their level is good, but I don't do it once in their life unless their health situation changes. Like, look, this is going to be done. It's up there. Great. We're good. Just keep taking it. And uh, so that's the dose I recommend to people. Get one test. If the level comes back north of 70, you're, you're good. Our epidemiology says when you get much north of 70, you're not, you're not getting any further return by raising the level higher. Hmm. And so, I, you know, and you're not hurting anybody at 100. All right. I don't want anybody to think, that, oh, my God, he came back 100. Right, you're not hurting anybody at 100. Yeah. Um, and so I tell you, that's the dose I recommend on vitamin D and vitamin K. Okay. That's very okay, good. I, but, the next best preventative after that is this product called Transfer Factor, which, by the way, is made by your natural killer cells and your uh, T helper cell, TH1 lymphocytes that run that cellular part of the immunity that runs through the tissues. Uh, Transfer Factor is actually probably the thing in breast milk that uh, makes it so it's, uh, we can fight specific infections. Transfer Factor is specific, but it also has a non-specific effect of raising the number, number of natural killer cells. I've had many patients who tell me if I take it over the winter season, I just don't get colds. The transfer factor has been shown that it upregulates natural killer cell activity. It takes a couple of weeks for it to really have a marked effect on people. But I suspect it would be our next best thing. It's more expensive than vitamin D. So I tell people, make sure you get the vitamin D first. All right. Yeah. Uh, transfer factor, you can use transfer factor and get in trouble in certain situations. Um, not very commonly seen, but not rare either. Uh, but it's probably our next most effective thing to do this. By the way, transfer factor is also ancient as far as epidemiology, as far as um, uh, evolution goes. Um, if you've got a backbone, you make transfer factor. Um, and the transfer factor made by a human is chemically identical to the transfer factor made by a dog, made by a reptile. Um, mm. It's one of the reasons it's never been taunted as being the good immune system thing it is because you can't get a patent on it. It occurs in nature. Okay. <laughs> And so the non-specific effect of transfer factors you would get if you, in fact, most of the transfer factor humans consume right now is coming from cows. Um, but it's molecule, atom for atom, the active ingredient part of that molecule is atom for atom. The non-specific part of it is atom for atom, just like what a human makes. It's that evolutionarily ancient. And it's our next best preventative, I think, after vitamin D. Okay, excellent. Uh, what else? Uh, there's a, a number of things that I have seen that uh, natural compounds have been applied specifically to a coronavirus model. So can you speak to some of that? Yeah, let's, let's go to the treatment stuff because it's interesting. You know, vitamin D is not a very good treatment. It, it, it does treat you when you get acutely ill, but once the cat's out of the bag and you're coming down with the cough and the fevers and all that, it's not quite as effective. Um, in fact, it's, I would say it's, you still do it, but yeah, don't, it's not going to be a, a tide changing kind of thing. Uh, probably our best demonstrated thing after that is vitamin C. Um, you have to remember that the way your immune system fights any cootie, when it decides it's going to get this cootie, is that it starts making this thing called an NRL3P inflammasome. And in this inflammasome, it generates some of the most oxidative toxins you have ever seen, stuff that would rust a bumper to death, hmm. it controls it very tightly and tries to make sure it doesn't make too much and keeps it in the right locations. But the reason you get sick from COVID-19 is because this stuff starts getting thrown all over the place. We're talking like it's like breathing ozone all day long. Hmm. I mean, this is that toxic. And vitamin C is one of our defenses we use to clean that mess up. Um, it's usually these things are generated in the water-soluble compartments of the body, 
Vitamin C is probably our major water-soluble antioxidant. Um, and in fact, having large doses of vitamin C, we're talking in the neighborhood of 500 to 1,000, two or three times a day for a short period of time, a week to 10 days, isn't gonna hurt anybody. As long as you use a good preparation of vitamin C, and I, I wanna stress this to people, because regular old ascorbic acid, we've shown at least in one study of athletes, when you first start getting regular ascorbic acid, there is initial decrease in natural killer cells. Now remember, those are the guys who are leading the war on this, on the, on this fight and its issues. Um, clinically, we're not sure how much that matters, but we have seen preparations of vitamin C, usually containing uh, vitamin C palmitate, um, that have made it so that we don't see that dip. We just see an initial going up like this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and not, I should say, not in the number of uh, NK cells, but in the, uh, in the activity of NK cells. Correct, yeah. And that's probably because, you know, when you look at NK cells, these are guys who are making this oxidative beatdown go hot, all right? So they're right in the borderline of a problem to begin with, all right? If you give somebody vitamin C in this huge dose, it's possible that we're deranging if they suddenly get an enormous influx of vitamin C that, that overcomes their regulatory mechanisms that we actually make them go bad for a while until they recover. Whereas if we use vitamin C palmitate, um, and there were some other things in that study of the vitamin C palmitate besides the vitamin C that may have been responsible for ameliorating that initial decrease in natural killer cell function. I tell them uh, in that setting, giving vitamin C in a way that, that um, we know has, doesn't get that initial four hour decrease in NK cell activity is important to do. And you're referring to the study from Drew Medical College back in the 90s, which I talk about to my clients all the time. So that's the one you're referring to. Right. I mean, that, that's probably our best study that shows because it came out and it was on natural killer cell activity. It showed, look, vitamin C makes natural killer cell activity go up. And that's what you want. Um, and does it, by the way, without side effects. We didn't see any problems come from that. Uh, but knowing that you're not going to cause that initial four to six hour harm uh, when you're doing it's a good idea because let's face it if you're into COVID-19 and you're riding the borderline of getting the tube down your throat with the ventilator um, probably the last thing in the world you want to do is to give somebody four to six hours where their NT cells don't work as well. Exactly. But it's important to know with vitamin C that what we're doing here is actually we're making it so that an NK cell can do what it has to do. We need it to make that oxidative stuff but we need to protect all of the cells that aren't virus infected from the effects of that. Because what's happening in COVID-19 disease is all the healthy uninfected cells are getting hurt by the activity to treat the infected cells. And vitamin C seems to be a way that we can rescue the uninfected cells and keep this inflammatory, this terrible oxidative response that we have to do. We can make it so that oxidative response is killing the virus infected cells without killing the healthy cells. Yes. Um, and that kind of specificity, we don't see from like remdesivir and things like this. Um, and we don't even see that specificity from steroids. Although I should say that I've heard that inhaled steroids in, in people who are getting this respiratory distress are a very effective way to reduce death and keep people off of ventilators. Um, and so th that's another thing that should be in the armamentarium. I don't, you know, function doctors have a tendency to say anything that's a drug is a bad thing. And this isn't always true. Um, if somebody has no ability to run their hypothalamic adrenal axis, and this is probably part of getting COVID-19 disease, is that when the inflammation gets out of hand, your body, your body uses cortisol as a way to tamp that down. And if you don't have, your brain can't run that system right, giving mm -hmm. somebody something like a steroid at this time may be a pretty physiologic response to treat somebody with COVID-19. 
Um, my bet is between vitamin C and appropriate use of steroids, that probably the death rate of COVID-19 disease would drop to very small. Now, I want to stress to people, I'm not an intensivist. I don't work in intensive care units. I have colleagues who do that work and have used IV vitamin C um, to great efficacy in this. There was a right. study published in China that suggested that IV vitamin C was very effective for this. Yes, I saw that. And uh, so I tell people, that I don't want to speak as an expert in an area where I, you know, I don't do lots of reading, but I know the biochemistry enough to say, look, I don't think remdesivir is likely to save you in this. The last thing that I think may be very effective if it's used appropriately is when this guy starts to get really sick is convalescent serum. Um, and, but it probably only works well if it's used like, oh my God, you just started getting symptoms, let's give him convalescent serum. Because now we can probably get the virus down to the point that it can't go into more healthy cells and cause more inflammation. Mm. I think one of the unique things about this COVID-19 particular variation of COVID is that the protein he's binding on to get into cells is actually on every cell in the body and it's an anti-inflammatory protein. So he's basically using your protection against you and every cell's got it. Therefore, once he gets out of the nasal mucosa or the respiratory epithelium, when he makes it past the initial round because your immune system is so bad, convalescent serum may be a very useful thing to have done, but it's not probably gonna be very effective. Well, from the trial we've had done, you give somebody two weeks into the illness, it's probably not doing much. It's gotta be, hey, I started to get fevers and chills and get sick, and okay, now we give you IV serum, we can probably make a difference. Um, those are the things that I see on the treatment end uh, that are probably gonna, would be very efficacious. The convalescent serum is hard to get, it's gonna be very expensive, it's not available right now to the average population. It's going to be hard to get large quantities of this. So to see things like vitamin C and a judicious use of steroids abandoned is a very sad thing to me to see happening. And that yeah. we're not doing a convention with transfer factor and vitamin D is just a slam my head on the desk disappointment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the, and the unique formulation of the vitamin C preparation that you're talking about from the Drew Medical College study. The, and actually, uh, for those that don't know, Dr. Aristo Vajdani, one of the world's foremost immunologists, was part of that study. You know, he's still regarded today, and this study was back in the 90s, but he's still regarded today as one of the world's brightest immunologists. And he was a part of that uh, vitamin C study with the, uh, the fat-soluble form of vitamin C that you were talking about, the ascorbyl palmitate, plus the precursors, the ascorbates that were added to that mix. So are you saying then from both a preventive and a treatment standpoint that that form of vitamin C plus vitamin D would be a good combination for both prevention and treatment? I, I think for, treat, for prevention, the type of vitamin C probably doesn't matter very much. Um, many people can use regular old ascorbate, 500 milligrams to 1,000 milligrams a day and get what they need if they're in their general state of health and trying to maintain it. And if you lose a few hours of NK activity because of that, you probably haven't lost very much. Where I get concerned is when the guy says, I think I am getting sick. This is the guy I say, look, don't go grab generic vitamin C, ascorbic acid from the shelf of your local CVS. Um, you probably don't have four to six hours to let your NK selectivity drop. Yeah. Now go get a, a, a preparation which has been shown but this preparation is not going to decrease that. NK activity is going to increase from the very moment you start taking it. Um, it's in the acute treatment when symptoms are developing that I tell somebody, don't go get dirt cheap vitamin C. You know, what's in your multivitamin vitamin C is probably fine. But for acute treatment, you really want to get this preparation that we've got the data behind that says we don't cause a bad thing to happen. 
because we know regular ascorbic acid for four to six hours causes a bad thing to happen. Yes. And you don't have time right now to do the bad thing. Right. After that, you want to go get cheap vitamin C, fine, but uh, not during the acute phase. Would it be fair to say that if a person were to just use straight ascorbic acid by itself and nothing else for preventive, even though maybe they're fairly healthy otherwise, that because of that dip in leukocyte activity, that they're kind of opening themselves up perhaps to get something in that four to six hour time window when their natural killer cell activity has actually dipped before it rebounds. Would that be fair to say? Well, yes, it is fair to say. You know, this is a, a question of, gee, you know, how long can you hold the match before you burn your fingers? And are you comfortable with that four to six hours of holding the match? Yes. Um, if the money, if you want to, st- you know, the other thing you can always do is look, start off your first couple of days with a good preparation of vitamin C and then switch to the dirt cheap stuff. You can do that as well. If you really don't want to hold the match for that period of time. But it is fair to say that, look, there's no way to argue this. The study's been done, at least in people who are heavy exercising athletes, that during the first four to six hours after you start taking ascorbic acid, your NK cells don't work so good. Anymore. Um, they recover after, you know, by about a day, they're back and doing better again. But there's no way we can get around the effects of that study that say, look, the acute treatment with vitamin C, if you've not been taking it at all, uh, at least if you're a heavy athlete, there's a period of time when this goes down. If this study had not been done in, in exercising athletes, because these guys strain their antioxidant systems more than a regular guy who just plays hockey once or twice a week. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough to know how much benefit they would get. But you know, I would feel comfortable telling somebody, look, at, at any point in time, prevention or treatment, this well-studied preparation of vitamin C is going to be at least a little bit better than regular old ascorbic acid. And you may want to consider, even if you're going to start vitamin C therapy, doc, I don't want to take a multivitamin, anything like that. I'm going to start vitamin C therapy and say, well, maybe for your first three or four days, you want to get a good prep. And then yeah. when you run out of that, you go get the cheap stuff. That this study, is a reasonable, this yeah, is a reasonable and, position to take. Okay, great. And that study also showed, by the way, that there was about a 25% better uptake into the white blood cell by that form of vitamin C versus regular ascorbic acid. So I think that's clinically relevant as well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think that may matter a great deal because remember, the, the NK cell has his own regulator to say, look, am I getting oxidatively toxic? And it may well be that vitamin C that doesn't get into the NK cell makes the environment worse for the NK cell until he can get enough in to make himself get better and explain that initial dip we're seeing. Whereas the vitamin C palmitate, because it's so much more lipid soluble and will go across a cell membrane and can get into an NK cell, may avoid that dip. It may very early on tell the guy, hey, look, I know the outside is changing, but the inside got better too, and so you're good to go in case they'll keep on rocking. That may be very important in that. Um, and so it's a point well taken. The, ex- the effect may be exaggerated in these, exa- in these exercising athletes, but I, I don't think it probably goes away in normal people. Mm. I think probably if you did that study again in people who weren't heavily exercising, you'd still see some degree of initial decrease in case cell activity that then recovered. And I'm, you know, I'm, if you don't want to take that initial decrease and like, and, and during the, the middle of a COVID-19 epidemic is probably the worst time to say I'm going to gamble on that four to six hours being bad. Um, right. You know, that's a very, very good position for somebody to take, I think. So that would be perhaps a starting place, vitamin D, vitamin C, very commonly uh, known things. But what about things that people maybe don't know as much about, at least the general population, things like N-acetylcysteine or EGCG from green tea, things of this nature that have been actually studied in COVID with good results? Can you speak to that? 
Yeah, so what these things are all doing is they are all ways to negate that reactive oxygen species storm that comes when your immune system goes out of control and starts throwing oxidizing agents willy-nilly everywhere. These mm -hmm. things all sop up that mess. So almost all of the polyphenols and isoflavones, astaxanthin, rheoxanthin, uh, curcumin, uh, EGCG, all of these things that are plant-based that are going to have a great ability to come in and say, look, the mess your immune system is making, we can tamp this down. These should also be considered in acute treatment um, and probably also in a preventative role because uh, you know, some of these, especially the, the polyphenols and isoflavones, the, uh, particularly the um, retinoids, are actually incorporated into the cell membrane so that when the oxidative storm breaks out, there's some buffer there to get you through it. If you're low on that, you probably are, that's probably one of the other variables that puts you in the 30% that comes down with symptoms. And so I tell people those are other things that are very useful to have on board is these polyphenols and isoflavones. I don't know that we've proven one's better than the other, but curcumin, EGCG, astaxanthin, cesanthin, um, the retinoids, uh, lutein. These are all things that I think are, hey, look, if your immune system is getting in trouble, um, this is something you can do when it's become dysregulated to, to calm the storm. Yes. The fat-soluble ones probably don't act as fast as something like vitamin C because that's, they're in the water-soluble component, which is where a lot of this damage is getting done. And it takes a while to incorporate them into the lipid-soluble like the cell membrane. But that doesn't mean that they're not going to have an effect. And we've got data that says they do have an effect. And so if somebody said, gee, I want to combine my special vitamin C preparation with some of these polyphenol mixes, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're getting symptoms. I do it. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. get busy on this. Good thing. These polyphenols probably give us great prevention. Yes. Um, I don't know if we have as much data on prevention as we do in treatment of like COVID-19. But knowing the way they work, if somebody's got their cell membranes loaded with retinoids and polyphenols, you've got to believe this gives somebody prevention from these diseases. You can weather that oxidative storm better. Absolutely. And the thing that's nice about some of these compounds is that because they have been studied in a COVID SARS model, uh, people that are very concerned about uh, COVID, that kind of puts their minds at ease, I think, if uh, they know that, wow, you know, I can take EGCG from green tea or quercetin or, or zinc or uh, N-acetylcysteine, some of these other things that have, have been studied successfully in a COVID model and perhaps build my immune system up to the point where I can be around just about any type of social situation and feel confident that I'm not going to get sick, or at least if I do, it's going to be very mild and I get over it very quickly, especially with increased doses. Right. And I think, you know, we have, we've almost given this, this area of medicine a voodoo ear to it, that, you know, mm. these plant explosions. You know, a lot of this comes because they were used in studies of acute treatment um, without putting things like vitamin C with them. And so, you know, the lipid soluble yeah. uh, things to try and treat COVID-19 take a few days before they start to really make a big difference their effect grows over time in this. And so we do a two-day study and say, see, this stuff doesn't work. They're so focused on the virus that they say, well, you know, it's just not safe for me to go out. No matter how much of this stuff you give me, it's not safe for me to go out. And I tell them, but remember, 70% of the people who get this virus are never going to have symptoms. Therefore, right. there is a way to make it safe to go out. All right. right? Um, the idea that you can have an immune system so good that germs aren't a threat to you is not naive and stupid. As a matter of fact, I tell people it looks like it's the better plan. We can't keep germs away from you. Um, you know, I tell you, you have to understand there's evolution is against COVID-19. Because if a virus is able to kill you, it can't reproduce. 
it's not in its interest to kill you. You might be okay if I make you a little sick, but it's not okay for me to kill you. And so you have to remember that, guys, this was all about the immune system all of the time. Even measles doesn't want to kill you, make you sick for a while, make you miserable, but rarely kills you, all right? If COVID-19 were all that in a bag of chips, it would have wiped out Wuhan, China. Right. right? But there's still people in Wuhan, China. <laughs> so yeah. the immune system is where we're going to get, our, we're going to make our money on this on the immune system. We're not going to make our money on this working on the virus. It's too small a variable in the equation of disease. And I hate to see these opportunities missed. Between these polyphenols and vitamin C and vitamin D, we've probably got the protection. So that 70%, if we could get that in the population, get it into them quickly and get it used intelligently, we would probably have that number very quickly from 70% up to 95%. Hmm. Um, I mean, and I'm, that sounds like a bold prediction, but I tell somebody, look, rhinoviruses don't kill a lot of people. 70% of people get them, never know they're there. Um, it's that immune system dysregulation uh, that is the problem. And if we give people transfer factor and vitamin D and we load them with the polyphenols, EGCG, quercetin, things like that, so their cell membranes and their aqueous spaces are all protected, give them vitamin D and transfer factors so that they can regulate normally, um, then this COVID-19 thing, it, it's not threatened. I mean, if people, have, these patients would ask me, doc, why aren't you wearing your mask? It's like, I'm not very worried about it. I eat a ton of polyphenols. I have a great vitamin D blood level. I have vitamin C in my body on a regular basis. Right. Um, you know, I'm just not scared of this thing. And it's not crazy that I'm not scared. I, I'm a family doctor. I had sick people come into the office. I, I think that that's, sure I've, I've you know, you're exactly right. Crazy. And, you know, I've, I've even uh, seen some of the latest statistics that if you're between the ages of zero and 50 years of age, you have a 99.97% chance of surviving COVID uh, if you even get it in the first place. Really, it's people that are a little bit older, especially if there is a combination of age and comorbidities that need to be a little bit more concerned. But the general population, it just does not seem, from what I've seen anyway, I'm not an expert, but from what I've seen anyway, that I have, I'm pretty well read on COVID. I try to stay up on all the data. Um, and from what I've seen, the general population just isn't that much at risk, but especially if you do something to boost the immune system, like what we're talking about here, your chances of uh, contracting it and actually getting very sick from it are very, very, very low. As a matter of fact, the fact that age is such a big variable in COVID-19 disease is another indictment to the immune system. Because think about it, until you've point. got 80 years of, of immune system destruction having gone on, done all the bad things that ruin immune systems for 80 years, you don't get bad enough that the virus can still get you. If you're in the 55 range, you haven't accumulated enough injury yet that this virus is much of a threat. Um, that further gives evidence for the fact that the virus isn't the problem. It's the immune system. And if we're going to save 70 and 80 year olds, we're not going to save them with vaccines, I doubt very seriously. We're not going to save them with remdesivir. We're not going to save them with masks. Um, it's useful for them to wear masks in the short term until we get their immune system rectified and all of this done. And for some of them, this can be a while if they're already in chronic inflammatory response and they're living in a biotoxic environment. But there's a part of me that says, even in those people, with what we can do with vitamin D and the polyphenol mixes and vitamin C, my suspicion is that even 80-year-olds don't need to die from this. Mm -hmm. um, right. 
and to me, the saddest thing, I, I hate, you know, I hate it when a man makes money for a disingenuous argument. Um, but sadder to me is to watch a man die because he didn't hear the ingenuous argument. This is the sadder thing to me. Yeah. So. Well, this has been great. I really appreciate your knowledge and uh, being willing to share with it. I know we've, we've taken quite a bit of a chunk of your day. So I appreciate you being so generous with your time and your knowledge. Uh, I believe that a lot of people are really going to benefit from this. So uh, Dr. Stock, thank you so much for being willing to share with us today. This has been great. I've learned a lot and I know that a lot of people that are going to be listening to this are going to be very encouraged and uh, learn a lot as well. So thanks so much. It's been a pleasure, Andy. Thanks for having me on. Okay. We're going to sign off for now, but you and I will connect soon. And for those of you that are listening, if you have any questions, uh, to direct to Dr. Stock, um, I'm happy to take those and pass them on to him, or I can answer any questions that you have of me as well. You know where to find me. But we're going to sign off for now, Dr. Stock and I, so we'll catch you next time around. Thanks so much. Take care.